Bruce and I have a lot of things in common, and I just learned one more a few minutes ago. My wife also tells me not to talk when I'm up here. I, I appreciate Bruce saying something about you know being here this evening. I appreciate the prayer that Tony led, uh, saying something along those lines. We talked to God as well. A lot of parents tonight taught a very important lesson just by showing up, just by having their children here, their teenagers here. And uh, I know there are some kids tonight who are really excited and they wish I would just be quiet when it gets to the closing song. I get that. But I want to tell all of our children, teenagers, high school and down, when uh, I get through preaching and usually after the, during the closing song, I'll go all the way to the back and stand and, stand and greet folks. I'm not going to do that tonight. After the closing song, I'm going to come back up here because in this pulpit there's a box. It's got some ribbons on it. And there's enough little boxes with ribbons for every child and kid who's here tonight. That's just a little something. It's not expensive, okay? It's a, but it's just something to, to show you. This is special. And you need to thank your parents, grandparents, whoever it was who brought you tonight. They taught you a very, very important lesson just by being here. You know, it's true that the world, of course, this time of year, time of year seems to consider really very important things, and for that we're, we're thankful. We, we, could, we could spend a long time, in fact, I saw someone who's going to preach a sermon today It was you know, misconceptions about Christmas. We, we could do that all day long if we wanted to. Things the Bible does not say that some people might believe, or things that we're not sure about. We, we don't know the, the time of year and all those sorts of things. We, we could talk about all sorts of those, those things, and that's, that's fine. But I want to use one detail from that account that most of us know quite well, and maybe may Families read different times of the year, maybe in this time of the year because so many people are thinking about it. You have that well-known fact about Jesus, of course, being born in a stable, laid in a manger. Here was the Messiah, the very Son of God, the very Savior of the world, and He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't even born just in a regular home. Instead, He's, he's born where animals are kept. And, and the reason why, of course, is given in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, which ends that very famous little phrase, there was no place for them in the end. But before we get sort of a modern picture in our mind, I, I want you to see that this, even if it had been in the end, it wouldn't have been a noble place of birth. Because some have suggested that the phrase, the, the end, implies there might have been only one in that very small town of Bethlehem. We hear that song, Little Town of Bethlehem. That's a, that's a very accurate song. It was basically a village. And it was not uncommon for very small places to have but one uh, place of business like that. But even then, don't get in your mind the picture of a modern hotel with all kinds of amenities. Even some places we might consider to be one star probably have had more nice things than this particular inn would have likely had. We may, may get a picture in plays and things, a sort of a hotel-like structure, and Joseph and Mary knocking on a, a nice front door. That's just not the way it would have been. It's likely that at that time, an inn in a, a town that small was basically just an enclosed structure where someone who was passing through could sleep and maybe even let their animals rest. And most of those places, you had to bring your own stuff, your own bedding and those sorts of things. But since a census was being taken... That little village of Bethlehem had more visitors than normal, so even that, that very simple structure was full. And so they went somewhere else. They went to a stable. Likely, 
connected to the end. Very likely it was simply a a lean-to or a a building-out-back sort of place where animals were kept. A shed-like structure. And that's where Jesus was born. But using that little concept of no room for them in the end, I want us to think tonight just in a practical way. That's something that we always need to think about, not just this time of year, but using that concept in a way you may have thought about it before, but it's still good for us to think about. And that's to ask the question, have you enough room? And we're not talking about in an inn or anything like that. What we're talking about is what happened to this baby, if you please, over the course of his life. Because a lot of people like to leave Jesus there. They like to think of Jesus as a baby. It's an innocent story. It's a beautiful story. It is that silent night story. I hope you read the the bulletin article I wrote this week that not everything was silent on that night. But He came to do some things. And the things He came to do and to say, we always need to have room for in our lives. We could make a very long list if we wanted to tonight. But I want to ask just three questions that each of us needs to ask ourselves from time to time as it pertains not to the baby Jesus, but to, if you please, the adult or the Lord Jesus. Number one, have you enough room for Jesus' law? When Mary was told that she was the one who was chosen to be the mother of the coming one, the Messiah, her reaction is one that's of amazement. We can only imagine, we can only try to get in our mind what our reaction might have been to such an announcement. But sometimes we only focus on the simple fact that she was told and that she reacted. But we can overlook, if we're not careful, the actual wording of the announcement that was given to her by the angel Gabriel. In Luke chapter 1, excuse me, verses 32 and 33, part of what she's told is this. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. Just consider in those words some of the emphasis that's there. Here's an announcement, yes, of the coming of a baby, but the emphasis of at least those words is something about ruling and reigning and kingdom and those concepts found there. It implies if there is a kingdom and a ruler and a throne, that there will also be a law or a standard that is to be followed by those who are to be subjects of that king within that kingdom, the one who sits on the throne. But somebody might say, well, but I know this is in Luke, this is in a New Testament book, but that's still Old Testament stuff. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. And we're under the New Testament, and that comes into play when Jesus dies on the cross. The book of Hebrews makes it clear that a will does not come into place until the death of the one who made the will is there, or a testament does not come into uh, rule until the death of the testator. Well, that may be a comforting idea to some degree, but it's not what we see when we think about the coming of Jesus. For one among many reminders we could think about is one that we actually hear from time to time this time of year. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16, when one of those descriptions is found that He is King of kings and Lord of lords, as we often hear in Handel's Messiah number 44. But it's more than just something we expect to hear in a song this time of year. If Jesus truly is King, then there is a law that He expects His people to uphold and to follow. 
And remember that Gabriel had said in an announcement, of his kingdom there will be no end. So, we are under him as king, which means there is a law, a rule to follow. And that law, of course, is that New Testament, that new covenant. The New Testament is more than, it does contain, but it's more than just a nice story about Jesus. It also contains the way that He would have us to live. And to be honest, for any one of us, we might say, there are parts of that law that each one of us could say, this is a little easier for me to follow, and this might be a little more difficult for me to follow. But if He is King, then my role is to follow, no matter how easy or difficult certain parts of it might be for me individually or you individually. You see, it's far easier to think of that, that little baby and to be grateful for that gift that God gave, and that's fine. But a baby doesn't really expect anything, or at least command anything of us. Every mother's going, oh, they expect something. But they don't really command anything of us. But we consider that King Jesus does. He commands and He expects. And He expects us to live in a certain way. It's at that point that many stop listening to the message. And they don't have room for Him any longer. It is true, and thankfully so, that as King, Jesus is a loving King, a forgiving King, a gracious King. But that still does not mean that Jesus will not allow people just to live however they want to and then accept that. Instead, it should mean that the desire of each one of our lives is to draw nearer to Him, yes, out of gratitude for what He has done, but also out of respect and honor for who He is as King of kings and Lord of lords. If I feel as if there is no room for His law, the fullness of His law in my life, I simply need to remember one fact. He is King and I am not. Do I have room for His law? Question two. Have you enough room for Jesus' suffering? That baby was innocent. And though the surroundings were less than ideal, being born in a stable and all those sorts of things, we can still have in our, our mind's eye a picture of the beauty of that night, but also the glory of that night. When a family welcomes a baby into the world and, and everyone is healthy or relatively healthy, there's joy and there's peace about that moment that really is hard to shatter. And that's the picture we so often have in our minds of that night in that little town. But may I remind you that that same one who was born in that stable, in those innocent surroundings, if you will, was destined for suffering in his life. Just 40 days after his birth, as was the Jewish law, Jesus was brought to the temple in Luke chapter 2. And while there, Joseph and Mary came in contact with a man who's called a righteous. His name is Simeon who we're told was given a message from the Holy Spirit about this precious baby. And the first part of that prophecy is absolutely glorious. As Simeon praises God for this one who God has prepared, Luke 2.32, as a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He'd earlier referred to this moment as a time when he was seeing the salvation of God. But then Simeon turns his attention to Mary. And in Luke 2, verses 34 and 35, he said, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And then parenthetically he says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's verse 34 that's the key. This baby would be a, would be a sign that is opposed. And then he says to Mary, a sore pierced her soul also. 
implying that there would be piercing, if you please, for this innocent child. From the very start, when Herod was trying to kill the baby boys in effort to eradicate Jesus, all the way through His crucifixion on the cross, Jesus would be opposed, and sometimes violently so. That doesn't fit as well with our beautiful, serene image from that night of His birth. We want to think of the calmness and the glory of that night without letting our minds consider all of what Jesus was here to do and yes, to become. As you've probably considered before, the simple fact that there was no room in the inn is really a metaphor for the entirety of the life of Jesus because He was going to be, as it were, put out. He was going to be persecuted throughout His life. But it had been foretold that would be the case. Most notably, when I consider the words of Isaiah 53, specifically in verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. And if you've read Isaiah 53 lately, or maybe heard it read before the Lord's Supper, you remember that going throughout that chapter, words like wounded, crushed, oppressed, afflicted, just almost litter that chapter foretelling what this servant was going to go through. As he was hanging on the cross, Jesus spoke, recorded seven times. Some of them, the wording is, He said them more than once, but there are seven individual statements. And one of those statements was lifted from a psalm that David wrote, obviously in a time of great despair. But I want you to hear the sentence that Jesus said, but also the fullness of the verse from which it comes. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Psalm 22 and verse 1. When we consider the baby Jesus, it's far easier because we're thinking about calmness and beauty. But if we allow our minds to stay in that stable, we can smile about it and think about the innocence and beauty, and that's fine to a degree. But many people want to let their thoughts remain there because they don't want to really have room for the suffering that He would go through many times in His life, most specifically, at the cross. And that's not a new problem. Because Paul would write all the way back in the first century that the preaching of the cross to many people was considered foolishness. But it persists today. Our world may think of the cross at times, but often as nothing more than a beautiful piece of jewelry instead of what it actually was, an awful instrument of torture and death. We don't want to fill our minds with that kind of imagery, but we must make room for it because that's what Jesus came for. Do I have room for His suffering? And question three, have you enough room for Jesus' message? Simeon wasn't the only person who was given a glimpse of the baby Jesus, the infant Jesus, if you will, on that day. In Luke 2 and verse 36, we're introduced to a woman named Anna, who's described as a prophetess, and we're told that she was of great age. I'm told the original text could mean that she was an 84-year-old widow, and that's more likely. It could also actually mean she had been a widow for 84 years. But either way, for that time, she was of great age. But starting in the middle of Luke chapter 2 and verse 37, we're told, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming at, up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She's a remarkable example. When we're told that she spoke of Him, the tense of that verb is in the present tense, which means she just continually kept on speaking of Him. She continually spoke about this one. She did not see her work as sort of telling one message or one person and thinking that that was enough. 
Instead, once she had come to see Christ, she told everybody who was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, and she just kept going. Think about what that implies for us. First, it implies we need to be looking for those who need to hear about Jesus Christ. We've talked a lot about that lately, but Anna should give us a good example. Because it didn't matter who she was around, she was going to talk about Jesus. But more of our thinking tonight, there's also an implication here of staying with that work. That is, of having room for doing what Jesus requires of us. There can be times when any one of us can be tempted to sort of slack off, not want to work for the Lord. And it may be, as odd as it sounds, it may be after we've told someone about Jesus. We can sort of say, I've I checked that off the list. I, I've told someone. We've done what Christ said so we can stop and, and move on to something else. But that's not what Christians do. It's not a one-time act that we just check off our list. Instead, it's to be our life. Telling others about Christ is to be constant and ongoing and something we never really complete, but that we're continually working at. But such takes making room for His message. Sometimes the reason we don't tell others about Jesus is because we're not, taking, we're not making the room in our lives to see open doors of opportunity. We're incredibly busy. There's that hurry and hustle of life. We're rushing home with our treasures. It's never-ending. And all that movement and all that effort, there's a lack of focus on our primary mission. We can fail to see an open door of opportunity to talk about Christ presenting itself because we're just simply rushing through the things of this life. But instead, the opposite should be true. We should be laser-focused on our work as Christians and on telling others about Him. And we should constantly see open doors of opportunity to share Him with others. That takes not only making sort of a, a list, whether actual or mental, of what our priorities actually are, but also removing distractions that keep us from seeing those doors when they present themselves. You know, someone who hears this, whether here on a recording or something, who's not a Christian may think, well then, why would I ever want to become a Christian? It's going to take all my free time if I just talk about Jesus all the time. Wouldn't that be frustrating? It's only frustrating if we try to have it both ways. You see, those who are living their lives within the will of God may not be perfect, but they know they're doing what the Lord requires, so it's worth that effort. And it's not frustrating because when we see opportunities, we know this is the most glorious thing we could ever tell anyone. The message of Jesus. So tonight I simply ask, do you have room for, if you please, the totality of Jesus? We can think of Him at certain times of the year, consider He was a baby, and thinking of Him that way only takes a few days or weeks out of our year. And since it's a baby, it doesn't really require a total response or change in our part. But that's not what the Bible requires of us. If we're going to be true followers of Jesus, we must have room, in fact, we must make room in our lives for the totality of who He is and what He requires. And so tonight, as we get ready to sing the invitation song, each one of us needs to ask ourselves, is there an area of the life, the teaching, the message, the authority of Jesus for which I'm not making room? And I need to make room for the fullness of Him as Lord, as Savior in my life. If you need to come in tonight, will you do so? Always say and sing to encourage you.